and happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is January the fifth, two thousand and ten. Time to begin again. That's the mantra. Every January, a whole month of Mondays. The merry-go-round, go round. I used to go up to Tilden Park, ride on the merry-go-round. That was decades and decades ago. Years and years ago. You remember Playland at the beach in San Francisco? <laughs> Parks and recreation seem to be off the agenda these days. I must write to the governor, write to the Times. I know, actually, that we're in a depression because the media, well, the mass media voices are so relentlessly upbeat. My God, they're wearing the mask of merriment.、Uh, Devilishly cheerful. I think of the mask of the Red Death coming to mind. Is it Poe short story? Was that Poe? Yes. Oh well, life and death, time and tide. Kurt Vonnegut tells us that we must、uh, just keep our minds on the good stuff.、Uh, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. He always describes. Well, he says, you know, we have to stick with the moments, the glorious moments of happiness. For him, for Kurt Vonnegut, they were mostly fantasies of、uh, a woman.、Uh, what was it? Which actress was it?、Uh, on uh, 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 a fantasy planet,、uh, you remember uh, in uh, Slaughterhouse Five. Just forget about the facts and go to dreamland. Forget all about fact-free fascism. Forget about know-nothing nihilism. My favorite phrase for years and years was, "Ignore ignorance, ignore ignorance." Work on that one for a while, and you'll see what I mean. Just ignore ignorance and don't worry about want. Now, Charles Dickens used to describe. Those as the twin evils, ignorance and want. He personified them as two little children. I think the girl was want and the boy was ignorance. I've forgotten now. Anyway, he said that of the two, ignorance was the worst. You know, you can assuage want, you can feed the people, but ignorance. 
That's the heavy one. Ah, uh, last night, for some peculiar reason, I found myself reading Mark Twain's essay, "The Damned Human Race." It goes with my favorite、uh, end of the year reading. I have a little shelf. Ah,、uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's "The Crack Up." I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> They're the the doomsday essays, you know. The it's all over into the abyss. Here we go. Uh, was it Thomas Beckett? Yes,、yeah, not Tom, no, no. I'm thinking of um. Oh no, Beckett's lies. Beckett. Uh, dear old Samuel Beckett. He wrote, "Try again, fail again, fail better." That's as positive as I get. That's my positive、uh, phrase. I put that over my typewriter.、Uh, anyway, I was reading Mark Twain on the moral sense. I love that stuff. You know, he says that man is the only animal that blushes, and that the higher animals—that is, the cats and dogs and the、uh, animals that don't have、uh, what do you call that?、Uh, The kind of consciousness that makes them ashamed, that makes them use fig leaves.、Uh, he says that、uh, they lack the moral sense, and therefore、uh, they are far superior to us.、Uh, he goes on to detail all the crimes committed in the name of religion, the name of patriotism, and so forth. And、uh, of course, this is man's creativity. To make up these stories, but to allow him to murder his own kind,、uh, he talks about the social controls that we put on members of our own tribe.、Uh, anyway, he says that it is our primal curse. This、uh, moral sense. Let me just read you. I was listening to、uh, the dear doctor on the program before me. He said there was hope. Hope for the human race, and I thought, no, 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 no hope. Let me read you the hopeless passage. Here is Mark Twain. This is called "Letters from the Earth," the uncensored writings of Mark Twain. These are posthumous.、Uh, these were published long after he had died. And Mark Twain writes that human history in all ages is red with blood, bitter with hate, stained with cruelties. But not since biblical times have these features been without a limit of some kind. Even the church, which is credited with having split, spilt, spilt more innocent blood since the beginning of its supremacy than all the political wars put together have spilt, even the church has observed a limit—a sort of limit. <laughs> I have a footnote here. The new fundamentalists seem to have gone over the edge. No limit there, right? Ah,、uh, aha!、Uh-huh. Yes, in the name of somebody's God, we are now allowed to blow each other up. Anyway, Mark Twain goes on to say, "You notice that when the Lord God of heaven and earth, adored Father of man, goes to war, there is no limit. He is totally without mercy." He who is called the fountain of mercy, he slays, slays, slays all the men, all the beasts, all the boys, all the babies, also all the women and all the girls, except those that have not been deflowered.
Uh, and he goes on to describe in detail uh, how it is necessary to deflower all the virgins before murdering them. Yes. Ah, uh, uh, he says, what the insane father requires is blood and misery. He is indifferent as to who furnishes it. Yes, let's see. Uh, the heaviest punishment of all was meted out to persons who could not by any possibility have uh, have deserved so horrible a fate. <laughs> the 32,000 virgins. Oh, dear. I think I'll skip this next paragraph. They're getting very fussy at the FCC about descriptions of uh, sex and violence. And anyway, I'll jump over to his discussion of slavery, which, of course, uh, may be a little worse for women... Uh, <laughs> and it is for men. Uh, let's see. The bit about slavery. Uh, hmm. Now, let me read you first about uh, the priests and the virgins. Uh, virgins, he says, were our spoil, plunder, or booty. Man claims his share. Uh, his priests, God's priests, got a share of the virgins too. What use would a priest make of virgins? The private history of the Roman Catholic confessional can answer that question for you. The confessional's chief amusement has been seduction in all the ages of the church. I have a footnote here. <laughs> My father's favorite um, uh, favorite game was to tease the local Catholic priest. He, My father was the local doctor and he would tease the um, uh, priests about what they did in the confessional when they listened to the sad tales of all the young women. And of course uh, the priests would take offense anyway. Um, uh, I Once again, I'm going to have to skip over some of this stuff. Uh, Mark Twain is still quite, quite, uh, what's the word, uh, licentious. <laughs> no. Anyway, he's talking about the whoremasters. And uh, yes, uh, he says that the priest is required to ask questions that would excite any woman who is not uh, uh, paralytic. Good Lord. Uh, <laughs> once again, no wonder they, they censored uh, Mark Twain. Uh, he goes on in great detail about the crimes not only of the white settlers in America, but of the uh, indigenous people as well. He spares no one. Um, <laughs> he goes on to discuss... The rape of a nation of a continent. Uh, it's pretty scary stuff. Uh, Letters from the Earth is the uncensored Mark Twain. You can usually find it in used bookstores. The little copy I've got is from Harper and Rowe. And New York Times Book Review says that this collection of largely unpublished material is the most impressive contribution to the books of Mark Twain since The Mysterious Stranger of 1916. The attitude is that of Jonathan Swift. 
The intellectual contempt is that of Voltaire, and the imagination is that of one of the great masters of American writing. Right. Uh, you remember Jonathan Swift was the chap who wrote that lovely essay about the way in which the Irish could solve their problem when they were having a famine. He suggested that they cook and eat their children. He gives recipes. Um, Voltaire, of course, is the guy who wrote Candide, that wonderful story about this being the best of all possible worlds. <laughs> that was the philosophy that was kicking around in Voltaire's time. It was his, ah, uh, what do you call it? His New Agers. You know that. Uh, it's all good. <laughs> yes, in the best of all possible worlds, things turn out just fine. Let's see what else Chicago Sunday Tribune says about Mark Twain's letters from the earth. These are letters, by the way, from Satan to uh, God on high to the Christian God in heaven. Satan comes down to earth. He's a fallen angel, you will remember. And uh, what he observes of mankind is very shocking. So he writes letters to God telling him uh, that things are a bit messed up here on earth. Uh, the Chicago Sunday Tribune uh, writes that the high point of the book is the title section which presents a series of letters supposedly written by Satan reporting on a visit, uh, his visit to Earth where he observes the human race experiment. Twain takes man's most revered beliefs and demonstrates their downright preposterousness when examined in a cold light. Twain is iconoclastic, not at all gentle in his idol-breaking. But reading the letters should be stimulating to anyone interested in looking at the world around him objectively, and it should be a delightful experience to anyone with a sense of humor. Now, we all know that a sense of humor <laughs> is imperative to our survival, particularly at this time. I think soon I must go back to the old classic uh, stories I must read you Mark Twain's The Diary of Adam and Eve my most favorite I think it was one of the first things that I read here on KPFA The Diary of Adam and Eve it may even be at bottom a little sentimental uh, Twain is extremely loving and deferential to Eve uh, he makes Adam into quite a doofus <laughs> yes but Eve is the what do you call that uh, she's the world uh, the world before the fall she has all the right uh, ideas about joy and uh, beauty but uh, then she goes around starts naming things you know drives Adam crazy uh you know, the dodo bird. He says she never has a reason for the names except that, well, it looks like a dodo, that sort of thing. Anyway, I recommend to you The Diary of Adam and Eve if you need an upper, a book that will make you believe that uh, there is something to this business of looking into literature to lift your spirits and <laughs> to make you see the great cosmic joke uh, I remember in the diary of Adam and Eve when the first little baby boy appears and Adam thinks it's a fish, you know. 
<laughs> then he comes to understand its uses, the reason for its existence, yes. Mark Twain's Letters from the Earth, highly recommended. Let me see, there was one more little bit that I did want to read you. It was about, it was about slavery, uh, and about woman's equality with man. Mm-hmm, and the lower animals, uh, Actually, Twain, mm-hmm, Twain has such a wonderful, a wonderful way of looking at women. He turns what most people in his time thought were false into their, uh, their best wisdoms. Uh, he understands that, of course, they have no use for what man calls, uh, logic and, uh, you know, uh, rational thinking. Uh, what was it in Freud in his Civilization and Discontents? Um, explains some of that. Uh, but, uh, Freud looks down on what is, what he calls the oceanic feelings and impressions of women. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me read you, yes, just this one paragraph in The Damned Human Race. The question that uh, Twain asks is, was the world made for man? <laughs> he says, I seem to be the only scientist and theologian still remaining to be heard from on this important matter of whether the world was made for man or not. It is time for me to speak. I stand almost with the others because they believe the world was made for man. I believe it likely that it was made for man and they think there is proof, astronomical mainly, that it was made for man and I think there is evidence only, not proof. <laughs> it is too early yet to arrange a verdict. The returns are not all in. When they are all in, I think they will show that the world was made for man, but we must not hurry. We must patiently wait until all the evidence is in. And he goes on to make fun of the scientific, uh, the scientific, what do you call that jargon of his time, right, uh, and he does a good job of it, too. It reminds me of a wonderful book by George Bernard Shaw called The Black Girl in Search of God. I always put it next to Mark Twain's because, Mark Twain's collection, because in The Black Girl in Search of God, George Bernard Shaw takes a woman that he thinks of as a blank sheet of paper coming out of Africa, naturally. He's wrong about that. She has all her own traditions. But she is the pupil of a Christian missionary from Europe. And she reads the Bible, and she sets about looking for God literally. And in uh, Shaw's book, she goes um, through history and time, knocking down one idol after another, one God after another. Uh she pulls the rug out from under all the traditions and all the games we play to make ourselves feel important, all our 
ritual manners and uh yes oh the world the world before and after creation uh and eve's autobiography and little cain yes little cain when little cain arrives uh and how they learn Adam says, we have nine children now, half boys and half girls. <laughs> and then Mark Twain goes launching into a discussion of education in his time. Uh-huh. With all Cain's brightness, he cannot learn to spell. That's just like his father, the brightest of them all. Uh, now, he says, uh, Abel can spell... <laughs> anyway, he goes on to show the signs of intellectual inferiority and how how we mark the children with these signs. He says the whales don't teach in this manner. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolute ignorance as opposed to just uh, conditional ignorance, right? How the milk gets into the cow. This takes him several pages. Uh, The milk was not taken in by the mouth. It was condensed from the atmosphere through the cow's hair. Yes. Anyway, back in, (laughs) back, back before all that nonsense, uh, there was life in the garden. Back when we were sensible, when we had love, peace, comfort, and contentment. And when it was a joy to be alive. No pain, no infirmity, uh, no physical signs to mark the flight of time, no disease, no care, no sorrow. One might feel these outside the pale, but not in Eden. There they had no place, and there they never came, and all days were alike. All a dream of delight. Interests were abundant, for we were children, and we were ignorant. Ignorant beyond the conception of the present day. We knew nothing, nothing whatever. <laughs> my footnote here in the Twain book is is my favorite Oscar Wilde quote. It's from one of his uh, dotty characters, Lady Bracknell. She is asking a young man, whether he is qualified to be a married man, he has asked for her daughter Sandy in marriage, and she says, I think that a man who is to be married should either know everything or nothing. Uh, which do you know? And he thinks about it for a minute, and he decides to be conservative, and he says that he knows nothing. And she says, I'm glad to hear it. Ignorance is a delicate, exotic fruit. Touch it, and the bloom is gone. <laughs> Anyway, Twain goes on to talk about what happens when, you know, we eat of the tree of knowledge. Uh, Yes, he says uh, that Eve and Adam were starting at the very bottom of things at the very beginning. They had to learn the ABC. Today, the child of four years knows things which we are still ignorant of at 30. (laughs) And that was, what, 150 years ago. He goes on, Twain goes on to say, there was no one to tell us anything. There was no dictionary, and we could not know whether we used words correctly or not. 
We like the large ones. I know now that we often employed them only for their sound and dignity, while we were quite ignorant of their meaning. <laughs> and as to our spelling, it was a profligate scandal. We cared not a straw for these trifles, and so we accumulated a large and showy vocabulary. We cared nothing for the means and the methods. But studying, learning, inquiring into the cause and nature and purpose of everything we came across, these were passions with us. This research filled our days with brilliant and absorbing interest. Adam was, by constitution and proclivity, a scientist. I, Eve, may justly say I was the same, and we loved to call ourselves by that great name. Each of us was ambitious to beat the other in scientific discovery. This incentive added a spur to our friendly rivalry and effectively protected us against falling into idle and unprofitable ways or into frivolous pleasure-seeking. <laughs> Eve goes on to say, our first memorable scientific discovery was the law that water and like fluids run downhill, not up. It was Adam that found this out. Days and days he conducted his experiments secretly, saying nothing to me about it, for he wanted to make perfectly sure before he spoke. I knew something of prime importance was disturbing his great intellect. I knew it was something. Anyway... <laughs> His repose was troubled. He thrashed about in his sleep a good deal, but at last he was sure and he told me. I could not believe it. It seemed so strange, so impossible. My astonishment was his triumph, his reward. There, you see, he said, it runs downhill. In every case, it runs downhill, never up. My theory was right. It is proven. It is established. Nothing can controvert it. Now, Eve goes on to discover that, uh, well, she, of course, figures out that it runs uphill while they're sleeping. But she doesn't want to tell Adam because, you know, uh, that would depress him and make him think that she knew more than he did. And she doesn't want to put him down. <laughs> anyway, I wish I had time to read you some stuff I brought today. It was, uh, once again memoirs from dates that are exactly 25 years ago. I'll have to save them for next time. Uh, I just love to do what I call uh, analogies, um, the way things were and the way things are now. Uh, the laws of God in Twain's book are so funny, and uh, he puts them upside the laws of man and, of course, he shows that all of these, these, uh, what is it, all this religious ideation is simply psychological projection. <laughs> that we build statues to God and, uh, yes, and to the word of God. Uh, and, uh, oh, what is it, uh, the best bit of this is the fact, well, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil my, uh, my image of Twain because he, he does say some funny things about women as well. But the first thing he says, of course, is that all in life, uh, that in all man's life, he will never see the day when he can satisfy one woman. 
and that no woman will ever see the day that she cannot overwork and defeat and put out of commission any ten masculine plants that can be put to bed to her. Good heavens. Anyway, this is all about, um, well, this is all about uh, sex. And I was thinking the other day that uh, Twain may be perhaps a little broken-hearted about it at the end of his diary of Adam and Eve. He lets Eve die first, and he has Adam mourn her. And Adam's last words uh, in the diary of Adam and Eve are, Wheresoever she was, there was Eden. I think I will have to conclude that in spite of all the things he says, Mark Twain was a terminal romantic. Perhaps that's why he was so brokenhearted in his old age. Uh, I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Every Friday Happy endings are the rule So divide up those in darkness From the ones who walk in light Light them up, boys, there's your picture Drop the shadows KPFB Berkeley.